Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this don't you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song in my Hello and welcome like to the podcast bad. That is always up to speed with hip-hop Joining me today in the studio From Vibe Magazine Master D, Mark Daly We are here to break down the latest are, 21 Savage are. Drake album Her loss, my friend The album was released 17 minutes ago where do we start? This is an epic. I just, I just, we're actually here to talk about Formula One, but I had to get that off my chest because I'm excited. Oh yeah, of course. I, like, I mean, who would be, right? I mean, sh- should we just kind of like throw the whole thing on pause and come back in a couple hours or maybe tomorrow night? So. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be such great podcasting. I don't know if our listeners would prefer that or a weather update from the Pacific Northwest where it's very cold mm. and very wet. Yeah, and it was snowing up at my place earlier, and it's just it's no just cold way. and miserable. Yeah, yeah, we we had about a, probably an inch or so, and now it's just all turned to it just turned to rain. And I'm kind of worried about the nice trees that we have out in the garden because they haven't really lost all the the the, the leaves yet. So you got the combination of like a little bit of snow, leaves, and I was getting really heavy. So I'm hoping I'm not going to lose any branches overnight. I tried to shake it off, but all I did was get covered in wet, soggy snow. So there's that. You can go now. You can keep talking again. <laughs> I've got nothing. I'm ready. <laughs> you got nothing. <laughs> you How you do really I react are distracted. To your description of a wet, soggy tree. Like it wasn't like you were setting up. Maybe you were setting up a punchline for a joke. But not, my friend, not really. We've got we have stuff to talk about. We're right sure. in the midst of a Formula One triple header. I guess we're back in Brazil this weekend. Super exciting. I think that's yep. a, a race both of us thoroughly enjoy. And the news just keeps coming. So we've got some juicy stuff to to get yeah, through. But absolutely. all of that aside, before we get started, how how are you? I'm good. I'm just looking forward to getting uh, to the weekend here. I mean, it's it's already Thursday night, so Friday is is it's basically here. Going to be a busy day tomorrow, but hey, this weekend, you know, we got Formula One to look forward to. I know the championships and everything are decided, but hey, it's still racy to look forward to. That's that that's the main thing. There's still NFL. There's NBA. There's all sorts of fun stuff to uh, to to watch this weekend. And and how about yourself? You are like, well, you're always pretty energetic, but you see even like a little more perky than usual, especially for a guy that's just transitioned back to the office. I mean, your days must be kind of like long and unfun yeah, at the moment. <laughs> seemingly more time in the office, which I, I think we knew was probably all going to come. So that two and a half year period of kind of rolling out of bed in my pajamas and, and working from my desk in the basement under a pile of blankets <laughs> is seemingly <laughs> at least partially behind me. But that's totally cool. But yeah, I'm a little bit amped up today. Uh, obviously, the Drake album's out, which I'm super excited about. And then tomorrow, I'm actually going to the US for uh, for business for the day. So that's cool. cool. Pop across the border. 
I think our listeners know you and I are like 40, 45 minutes from the US border. We yep. can be in Seattle in a couple of hours. So just popping across the border. But other than that, I'm in a good mood. You know, we sit here in North America, Major League Baseball, the World Series is on. We're yep. halfway through the NFL season. We just had the trade deadline. The NBA, the NBA season's in full swing. The NHL season's in full swing. If you're a sports fan, there's a lot to be excited and stimulated about right now. Oh, exactly. And it's also such a cool time of year because uh, there's so many great uh, holidays and uh, things coming up uh, totally, you know, over the next totally. couple of months. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, there's, there's something to look forward to. And talking about things to look forward to, I know everybody's just dying to get a championship uh, update here. So we'll uh, just do that uh, real quickly after Max winning last weekend in Mexico, now leading the standings with 416, obviously crowned world champion a couple of weeks ago. Sergio Perez is second with 285 points ahead of Charles Leclerc. George Russell is fourth and Lewis Hamilton has now leapfrogged Carlos Sainz to um, is now fifth in the championship with a 216. Over on the constructor side, still a totally unchanged situation <laughs> there. Red Bull 696, Ferrari 487, Mercedes 447, Alpine 153, and McLaren and uh, 146. So there you go. And well, let's do a fantasy update because let's we're do getting it. down to the end of this and it's going to be fun. We're going to be able to give away some prizes in a couple of weeks, which is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And the crazy thing about the Formula One Fantasy League is that the top 10, I guess the top 10 competitors right now are those that are currently ranked in the top 10 are only separated by 103 points. So anyone and anything can happen at this point. But to give everyone a quick update right now from the UK, Andrew T is on top with 4,121 points, followed by Aaron K., Whitman R, Thaddeus F, Janko West, Radic W from Poland, Marshall W from the UK, Adam J from Canada, Daffy A from the UK, and Matthew B from the United States. So again, the UK continues to dominate the, the F1 Fantasy League r- rankings, but oddly, it's because, you know, I, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. What I'm trying to say, Mr. Daly, is that there's a disproportionately large number of British listeners in the top 10 relative to where our listeners come from. So about a quarter mm-hmm. of our audience is from the UK and about 50% of it's from the US. So to everyone listening in the US, like step up your game next year because I want to see you represent <laughs> only one, only one American in the top 10 right now in Matthew B. So kudos to you, uh, two Canadians, Janko West and Adam J. But otherwise it's being dominated by the Brits, which is awesome. But I would love to see some more North American representation in there next year, competing for the top spot and those amazing prizes that we haven't yet actually announced, despite promising to have done so for eight months. Cool. So just before we get into the news of the week, uh, a couple quick shout outs. Uh, first of all, to JT the Human for that amazing intro music. So go check him out on Apple Music or wherever you get your music from. Also, a quick shout out uh, to the race weekend, uh, who uh, we're very, very supportive of. And if you want to get 10% off a subscription to the race week and go to theraceweekend.com and use our special promo code ScuderiaPod. And that is the race weekend. And race weekend is R A C E W K N D.com. All right. Hey, and just talking about uh, things that are really you know exciting, looking forward to the FIFA World Cup is coming up in a couple of weeks here. Really excited about that. Obviously, Canada is back in it for the first time since 1986, which, you know, is, it's, it's a generational thing. We got a fairly strong team. So I think the, the, the goal is to progress past the group stage and anything past that would be a bonus, but it's going to be a bit of a difficult uh, grind. So it, it, this is always a difficult 
thing for me, right? Because, you know, being born in Canada, come from a British Dutch family, I identify very strongly with with the, the, the Dutch side of my family. I lived there, lived in the UK as well. So, you know, it's like this three headed monster, like tearing me apart for, for, for loyalty. So, you know, it's, um, hmm, yeah, difficult time, but it's going to be fun. Look, always love uh, big tournaments like that of any kind. So very I cannot wait. Times. I cannot wait. I still very specifically being, I think the first, so in 86, I was living in Canada. That was the last time Canada qualified when the World Cup was yep. in Mexico. And I was too young. I don't remember it, but I was living in the UK mm-hmm. in 90 when it was in Italy. And I just, I remember how the World Cup took over that country. And of course, we were here yeah. in 95. I was here in Canada in 94. We didn't qualify. We missed qualifying. I think we qualified pretty well that year, but we didn't obviously qualify for the World Cup, but we did relatively yeah. well in qualifying. I remember Brazil came to Edmonton for a friendly and we we showed yeah. well in that, that friendly. Yeah. But uh, I remember how big the World Cup was in 94, but it's always been something that seemed to elude us and and everything just seemed to come together this time for Canada and at the same mm-hmm. time I was super excited that the US qualified super excited that we have Wales and we have we have England in um I, I I'm very excited about this and you know I don't subscribe to the broadcast network that is going to be showing the games in Canada but I will for for the World Cup um the cool mm-hmm. thing is all of the games are in the daytime so I've already had conversations with everyone at my work that on three specific days Days, I will not be taking meetings within certain times. And we're going to hang the big Canada flag outside of our house. We'll hang cool. up awesome. the British flag. But yeah, man, super, super excited. And just something else to look forward to. I would, I prefer my World Cup in the summer, but I'll take a World Cup in November and December. Exactly. You know, it's funny you should mention uh, the World Cup 1990. I remember being in Holland that year to watch it. And I remember watching with my uncles and my cousins and and stuff like that. And you remember that year, what was it, the quarterfinals or the semifinals? I guess it was when, when England lost to West Germany. It was still West Germany back then Yeah, yeah. Uh, on penalties. And then there's that iconic photo of Paul Gascoigne crying and pulling his yeah. shirt up over his face. There's a really cool documentary. I can't remember if it was done by ITV or BBC. It's called Gaza's tears and it used to be on youtube it might have been uh, removed but if you go go and search it up because it's really cool because it kind of talks about not it, i mean that that's kind of the climax is that game against west germany how it goes to extra time it goes to penalties and all that and how sadly you know if you're an english fan that they, they, they lost that night but it just talks about the whole journey like when they qualified for the world cup and they didn't really have um I, I guess expectations were low that year and they got on a bit of a roll and how the whole country got behind. It was really cool. It was, it was, it was a real snapshot from, you know, for, for me personally, for being young at the time, you know, being a kid, just, uh, it just, it was, it was a really, it was just a really cool snapshot of a, a memorable time. England was in All a right. funky group that year. I'm just going to, I'm going to derail yeah, yeah. a little longer since we're, no, no, that's what please, people tuned please. in for, right? Was to talk about Italy 90. Uh, that was a funky yeah. year because England was in yeah. group F and they finished atop the group, but they finished atop the group with one win and two draws. Uh, the Republic of Ireland finished with three draws, Netherlands with three draws, uh, and Egypt with two draws and a loss. So it wasn't like it was a powerhouse group. And England mm-hmm. just did just enough to squeak out. And, and of course, the rest is history. But I promise that's enough with soccer. We'll move on to Formula One. 
Yeah, but that's the thing, though, right? I mean, like like three or four months ago, people would be all over us from from you know derailing the comment or the the, the discussion, not talking about Formula One. But considering that the championship's been wrapped up for for so long, um, you know, I, I think that hopefully people are going to cut us a, a little bit of slack. But anyways, let's let's drag this thing out of the gutter, dra- drag it back on track here. So we got um, you know Max obviously set the record last weekend at uh, Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez. 14 wins in a season eclipses all the uh, the, the previous uh, records that have been set by Seb by Lewis. So pretty pretty uh, I- impressive. But also he's now set or scored the most points in a single year. So to date, with two races yet or left, Max has scored 416 points, which is three more points than Lewis scored in 2019, and eight more than Lewis scored in 2018. Seb scored 397 20 or sorry 2013. Max last year. Scored three hundred ninety-five or three hundred ninety-six. We're not doing half points. I I, I stand by I that agree. comment that, that we made last. We'll round, round it up. up. Max scored three hundred ninety-six points last year, and then Seb scored three ninety-two way back in twenty eleven. So that that's pretty impressive. I mean, he could easily add another fifty points to that total before he's done if he wins this weekend and wins in Abu Dhabi and two weeks from now. So that is uh, just uh, amazing. All right. So, looking now at the uh, drive of the driver of the day winners, Max has won five of those uh, this year in Holland, Miami, Hungary, uh, at uh, Imola, and Belgium. Charles has won four uh, driver of the days in uh, Saudi Arabia, Canada, Bahrain, and Australia. Sergio has uh, won uh, three times. Sebastian. Vettel has uh, won twice. Uh, Lewis has uh, been driver of the day twice. And then drivers that have uh, recorded one each include Science, Ricardo, MSC, Mick Schumacher getting driver of the day in Austria. And then Nick DeFries, driver of the day at Monza several weeks back. And, and deservedly so. That was a pretty impressive drive from a guy that had never raced in a Formula One car before and brought it home in, what was it, ninth place? Pretty, pretty cool stuff. Okay. So, oh, this this is this is a big one. This this one should probably hopefully take us to the break here in a, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> so, the most mechanical DNFs in the turbo hybrid era. And this comes uh, courtesy of uh, @f1_charts. You can follow them on Twitter, Instagrams, and uh, Facebook if anybody's still using fo- Facebook. So, in 2017, Fernando Alonso had a retirement percentage of 47.4%, meaning he retired once every 2.1 races. Kamui Kobayashi uh, in 2014 had a 37.5% uh, DNF, uh, mechanical uh, DNF uh, rate, and that was once every 2.7 races. Carlos Sainz in 2015, when he was with Renault, was, uh, had a, a technical DNF in, what was that, 2015? So it was one every 2.7 races as well. Fernando in 2015, God, that was a year that I think Fernando would like to, to, to forget. And I think everybody else as well, because that was just painful to watch the McLaren that year. It was the first year with the Honda Power. He uh, retired once every three races, or 33.3%. And then just one more, Danny Ricardo. His uh, first year, well, no, actually, it wasn't first year. That was uh, Red Bull, and that was uh, with uh, still with uh, the uh, the Renault Power in 2018. He re- he retired once every three and a half races, or 28.6 percent. So going right down to the bottom. So the the guy that finished the least, or had the the least amount of uh, technical DNFs in the turbo hybrid era, was Danny Kvyat driving for Toro Rosso Renault back in 2017. He retired once every five races. 
for 20%. So that's kind of a, a cool one. But uh, whew, that uh, 2015 season for McLaren, that was that was pretty nasty. Yeah, man. Not, there's not one to remember awful, for sure. Awful lot of orange at the top of this chart. In fact, four oh, of know, the right? seven, four of the top seven most technical DF, DNFs by a driver in the turbo hybrid era were McLarens with Alonso in 2017, Alonso in 2015, as you noted, their first year with the Honda Power Unit, Alonso again in 2018, which I suppose would have been his last year before his brief departure, and then Jensen Button also in 2015. Yuck, a lot, yeah. a lot of McLaren orange on that chart. So- I've got one loaded up here in the audio board. I should just see if it'll play and see if uh, everybody... I try three times, please, Fernando. I try already, so try yourself. <laughs> well timed. You remember that? That was the the, the Russian Grand Prix where yeah. the power unit failed on the formation lap and basically conked out on him, just turned around into start-finish just past the pit entrance. And that was, that was pretty, worked. pretty embarrassing. The soundboard yeah, came it through did. for us for once. Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Burns. It was excellent indeed. Okay, moving along, should we actually get into some uh, news story? And I think that we sh- probably should at uh, this point. So let me just dial up the, the the first news story of the night. And this is kind of a, in response to um, Red Bull's boycott of uh, Sky Sports. And that was after Ted Kravitz uh, made some comments, uh, you know, repeated comments about uh Lewis Hamilton being robbed of the uh, the world championship uh, last year. So Martin Brundle, who's a commentator or a color uh, commentator for Sky Sports F1, has criticized Red Bull for their boycott uh, after the uh, you know, their Sky's coverage at the Mexican Grand Prix last weekend and actually stepped up and defended Ted uh, Kravitz. Uh, and... Um, they did say that they're going to end this uh, boycott after this weekend, or is it uh, for this weekend? And and I thought it was kind of kind of a bit of a funny one too. And I talked about it with uh, Tim Haraney when I jumped on his podcast, um, or what we talked about in the post race uh, podcast earlier this week. That you know, I've I've seen some pretty critical comments from my time in the media, but that's you know more soccer compared to excuse me to Formula One. But I've I've never seen like I've seen individual like people be banned or athletes or coaches just wouldn't talk to them. I've seen reporters kind of like mocked and kind of like leered at by athletes and and, and coaches. I've seen people had their credentials removed <laughs> and banned, but I've never actually heard of sort of like a blanket boycott by an organization like Red Bull did. So I, I can sort of kind of like understand that they, they, they didn't like the comments, but to me, it seemed like, 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 why now? Like, like, what's the point? Like, like, I understand Max saying that he felt felt it was like constant disrespect, and that was what you know, basically Red Bull was saying as well. But it seems like it seems like a too much of a reaction, or, or is it, am I reading too much into that? Well, no, what's your take, Hammy? Not at all. I don't think you're overreacting at all. In fact, I think this entire situation reflects really badly on Formula One, and I think it reflects badly on the relationship between Sky and Formula One. I think it reflects really mm-hmm. badly on Red Bull. And just to just to kind of put the, the Formula One car in reverse here, Ted Kravitz's comment was, and I'm going to quote here, Hamilton doesn't win a race all year and then finally comes back at a track where he could win the first race all year, battling the same guy who won the race he was robbed in the previous year and manages to finish ahead of him. What a script and a story that would have been, but that's not the way the script turned out today, was it? Because the guy that beat him after being robbed actually overtook him because he's got a quicker car because of engineering and Formula One and design and pretty much because of Adrian Newey, Red Bull's chief technical officer, 
over there. So this, this apparently was the straw that broke the camel's back um, and ultimately kind of prompted this response from Red Bull. But I just, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's unacceptable. And I would make the same statement regardless of what team ultimately boycotted Sky Sports, that ultimately the the broadcast partner should have full and total autonomy to criticize teams and to criticize the sport and to criticize the drivers. I think if, if Sky Sports doesn't have the autonomy in the license to, to levy criticism, then this becomes a very WWE style entertainment product where the, mm-hmm. the broadcasters and the broadcast partners and the sport are so deeply integrated as to be inseparable from one another. And I get that Sky's a, a big partner, but I don't think they do enough to criticize the drivers and the teams and the FIA and the sport. And I think it's their responsibility to do so as part of the media. And earlier this week, hundred percent. Earlier this yep. week, I was I was watching. Um, the NBA on TNT, and I really appreciated that. Despite the fact that the TN- that TNT and the NBA are huge broadcast partners, I'm sitting there watching Charles Barkley lay in to deservedly so laying in to Kyrie Irving and the Nets in action in terms of suspending him at the time, and the leagues in action in suspending him at the at the moment. The Nets' response wasn't, "We are not going to." take interviews with anyone on TNT because TNT's responsibility is to be a broadcast partner, but mm-hmm. also to be an established media, a media entity. And you need to be able to criticize and have an open dialogue. I think Red Bull's response here was just awfully, awfully, awfully petty. And it feels like they're trying to paint themselves as a as a victim. And we saw that a little bit yeah. with, with Christian yeah. Horner and of course the whole cost cap fiasco, which we'll speak to in a minute. But I thought this was a little bit petty. And I would say that regardless of what team it is, that you have media obligations. Um, the, your yep. media broadcast partner should be able to criticize you. They should be able to revisit situations in the past. And I think ultimately, probably what frustrated Verstappen and and the Red Bull team the most was using the term robbed as a verb. But I think we could all argue, was that not what happened? And have we not all since kind of moved on because we all love Formula One and we put it in our rearview mirror because it was a human error, but we can still acknowledge that he was robbed at the time and that mm-hmm. the rules weren't applied and the FIA absolutely finally came out and admitted as much. But yeah, it's a little bit petty. Yeah, like 100%. And there, there's obviously a line that's that, that's drawn where like a, a member of the media should not cross that line. I mean, obviously... If it's a, like a personal attack, if they're going out and and just spewing vile, hateful things, and I mean, you know, th- there was none of that. I mean, if, if you can't criticize fairly, and and, and you can't, you know, yeah, I, I I just don't know. I I, I just can't even. I, I I just find it, like you say, I find it really petty as well. Like like you say, if you draw that line of like what is unacceptable when it comes to what the the media can and cannot say this falls well short of that i mean it's not even close right daily let me ask you a question so you were a credentialed member of the media in this city covering major league soccer and you were basically a local beat reporter for the vancouver Mm white caps did you yep. ever hold back criticism of that team for fear that maybe you weren't going to get access of course not, because you no. you 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 wanted to have integrity as a reporter over having 
accesses like I, I, anyways i i just i get frustrated with the situation yeah, I, I mean th- there were certain things that we wouldn't report we wouldn't uh, report things that were unsubstantiated or hearsay course, we wouldn't course. we we would not um you know, report the way, you know, things in a certain way because of uh, personal feelings of, uh, you know, either positive or, or negative. We were sometimes accused of being a little bit too positive, yeah. but, you know, we, we never made personal like comments about like a, like a coach or a player or a, a member of the, the organization, one of the front office staff or something like that. You just keep it professional. But we were, we, we felt it was like anything other than that was fair game. He had a good game. He had a bad game. That was a, right. a good, move the organization made in terms of a player trade or an acquisition or that was a stupid move that they made or they didn't make a move at all and that was good or it was bad you know i i think all of that stuff is is well within the the, the criticism and and um you know and, and we felt that you know if we're going to deal out good uh, commentary and, and and praise that you got to weigh that up with, with with the bad and sometimes when things and depending what's happening then sometimes that that balance shifts back and forth because you know you're they're never going to get it perfect 100 percent of the time they're never going to get it wrong 100 percent of the time and it's never even going to be a 50 50 thing right that the pendulum swings back and forth and it's just where you catch it on that arc but you just keep it to the professional and just don't be a jerk is basically what it is, but Completely. I certainly don't think that uh, what what Cred, Ted Kravitz said was was anywhere over over that line. So I have there, there, I've argued that. so many times before that by and large the Formula One media as a as a body is far too too insulated mm-hmm. and they're far too close to the teams and the drivers. And I don't think that there's enough investigative journalism happening. And if there is, no, that work's not no. bubbling up to the surface. And I don't think there's enough criticism of from the media, from the established credentialed media. I don't think there's enough substantiated criticism because I think it's good for the sport and I don't think it's there. And you and I have talked about this so many times, but flashback to 2019, Ferrari, mm-hmm we believe, we know, was caught cheating, yet we don't know what they got caught cheating. We don't know what the penalty was. And if this was any other sport in the world, you would have had journalists from every corner of the planet trying to cut their teeth and get that story because it would propel their their career forward. But in the world of Formula One, nobody wants to compromise their credentials by asking the difficult questions. So they let it go. And I think the precedence here could potentially be, oh, if you're a Sky broadcast member, don't you now dare say anything critical of any driver or any team because you're going to get blacklisted and you're going to lose your access. And I think this is how a lot of members of the media kind of operate that I'm in the paddock. I've got my gold pass. I'm not going to say anything or do anything to compromise it. And that's not good for the integrity of the sport. Yeah, you think the fifth estate would be all over this, right? Like there, there would be investigative journalists trying to break that, uh, that you know, through that wall of silence. And the closest that we got to the to the to the truth, which everybody assumed was an illegal fuel map, was divulged or slipped out of the mouth of a uh, former Ferrari driver Micasalo during a yeah. Twitch stream. I mean, <laughs> how crazy is that? You would think that there would be some some investigative journalism going on, but uh, apparently not. Anyways, time to step step away for a quick moment. We're just going to have a quick message from our sponsors, and then when we come back, we're going to come back and talk about our most favoritist thing in the whole wide world, and that is the budget breach but this time whereas i disagreed with uh, red bull's take on the whole kravitz thing i do kind of agree with what uh, christian horner said about the leak of the budget uh, cap breach and we'll talk about that in just a moment so we'll be right back don't go away passion drive and patience 
The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. And yes, we are going to stick with the Red Bull because Christian Horner, team principal of Red Bull Racing, said it's quote unquote hugely worrying that uh, the news of Red Bull's recent F1 got that uh, totally wrong. Red Bull's recent budget cap breach was uh, leaked, and you know I I think that's fair, right? I mean, if that that's a completely different story than to you know for for them uh, breaking the, the 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 cost cap. We don't really need to get into that, but yeah, I, I I find that a little bit problematic. I mean, I could have seen like the case for maybe like a um, like a whistleblower if uh, Red Bull did some kind of like sneaky backroom deal, or we had a situation like we were just talking about uh, before the break, like with the Ferrari. And uh, that situation with the power units uh, back in, in in 2019, and that uh, really shady secret deal that they did with the the FIA. I mean, I, I think everybody would be screaming and yelling and demanding more information, and everybody would be hoping that a whistleblower would uh, would, would come forward. But I mean, it wasn't just uh, Red Bull, but also uh, Aston Martin's name was uh, thrown out there for the uh, procedural breach. But I think that just you know, I'm I'm all for transparency. But I think in this case, the FIA should have been, you know, had the opportunity to 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 release it first. So who who knows where that leak came from? I just, yeah, it just smells a little bit fishy to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little mixed on this one because on the one hand, I'm demanding strong investigative journalism. And if this mm-hmm. was a story that was broken by a reporter because they had a source on the inside that was willing to divulge yeah. information, that's just a great story and, and kudos to the journalists. But on the other hand, that's not really, I think, what happened here. I think it was more that there, there are some folks on the inside, either with an accounting firm or with the FIA or with one of the teams or with Red Bull themselves mm-hmm. that that leaked this information out. And of course, that's what created the massive pandemonium and distraction in the two weeks leading up to the Wednesday when we were supposed to know if the uh, cost cap compliance certificates were going to be distributed. And of course, that was bumped to the Monday after the Japanese Grand Prix. Uh, but certainly, mm-hmm. if, if I'm the FIA and the FIA is due a significant amount of criticism over the last year, year and a half. And again, when I say the FIA, I'm not talking necessarily about those 
folks working at the marshalling level in the field, dragging themselves out of bed at 5 a.m. on a Saturday to go out and do marshalling and to do coaching of, of open wheel racing and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the senior executive levels, the decision-making body at the FIA. They deserve a lot of criticism. And likewise, I think a lot of the, a lot of the noise and distraction from the last month was unnecessary simply because they couldn't contain this news story, the fact that it got out admittedly is not a good look for the FIA, especially since we mm -hmm. still don't know where it came from. And like I said, if it was an investigative journalist that broke this story, you know, that's fantastic. But I don't think that's even what necessarily happened here. And certainly it was members of the media that started reporting on this, but they were only reporting on hearsay and gossip that was happening mm -hmm. within the paddock. Uh, but ultimately it was a bad look in, in Christian Horner's right to be upset. And I think all of the Red Bull team is because uh, obviously it was probably a big distraction for them. Uh, but at the same time, he was very, very aggressive in his dismissals of the criticism and his demands and assistance that they were on side, which was ultimately proven incorrect. But yeah, the FIA's, the FIA's got to figure out how to leak those holes or plug those holes. Yeah, because it's not like, uh, I feel this is like a completely different than that Ferrari thing a couple of years ago, because they they, they did release in their, uh, their, their announcement they had, was it about 12 or 13 points of where the cost cap was, was breached. Some of them was like related to oh, salary yeah. Yeah, and 100%, like, agree. And that, 100 agree. percent agree. Yeah, it was very, very detailed. So I, I would have been, you know, kind of a little, little bit in, more interested in like the, the, the numbers. Um, but I'm, you know, that's, you know, what I saw the preliminary, uh, sort of breakdowns and everything like that. But, you know, I, 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 as much as I felt, you know, you know, frustration that, you know, we're like year one in the cost cap and we had two teams busted for procedural breaches and one team for a minor overspend. But, uh, but still like it, you know, by the time, like it was all sort of sorted and done with that, um, you know, I, I don't really feel that frustration or that sort of bitter taste in my mouth because that uh, that whole Ferrari situation for a couple of years ago just it, it doesn't sit well with me now and it just uh, I, I just think it maybe it was sort of like a transitional time in in Formula One you know Liberty already been in charge for a couple of years I mean fortunately Bernie and the old regime was kind of long gone by then I feel like there's more transparency now but that 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 whole situation still just it just you know it, it it just gets under my skin even today, like three years later. If you if you recall, and I think a lot of our listeners may not have been watching Formula One at the, that point, but in the first half of the 2019 season, Ferrari looked like an absolute force and they had more top end speed yeah. than any team on the grid. And then all of a sudden, at some point after the summer break, all of that power just vanished and they became an afterthought. And then they struggled significantly in the 2020 season. And what's understood is that something about their power unit wasn't compliant with the regulations and the FIA became aware of it. And they ultimately administered a punishment that remains secretive to this day. But that said, all of the results that they were able to accrue leading up to the point where the punishment was, was, uh, was handed down to them, remained static, remained in place. So I think, to me, that's a hugely, hugely problematic moment for, for Formula One and very, very different than this situation. And I'm still very upset and very angry about the Ferrari situation because it, mm -hmm. they, they clearly had a very significant competitive advantage that was working against the technical and possibly the sporting regulations and that we don't ever, we've never 
we've never did, we, we've never had an explanation or clarification for what that obvious advantage was. And then we, mm-hmm. we also don't know what the punishment was. I, I, I really dislike the lack of transparency. I think in this case, there's a huge amount of transparency. We know ultimately, ultimately now, we know exactly what the breach was. We know exactly how it was documented. And the FIA followed the rule book as it was designed mm-hmm. and engineered to apply a punishment. And Ultimately, I think a lot of people are angry that the punishment itself didn't have more teeth, but I'm the only people I'm mad at for that are the teams for agreeing to the financial regulations as they were written that, you know, Ferrari can get angry and Mercedes can get angry, but you ultimately agree to the financial regulations that allowed this to be the outcome. And we could have modeled this, you, the teams, they could have modeled out this scenario themselves in the off season that what if a team overspent by X amount of money, what would the likely outcome be? And this is probably what you would have modeled out. So I'm not, I'm not mad at the outcome. I'm just, I'm mad at the teams for not insisting on financial regulations uh, that would have had more teeth. So ultimately uh, Red Bull will take their, what was it? $7 million fine and the reduction in wind tunnel time and they'll move on. Yeah, well, you know, going back to to, to 2019, I remember that uh, that that race at Monza, and Charles, like he was tag teamed, like double teamed by by Valtteri and Lewis all race long, and they they just could not get enough just to 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 pass him. I mean, it, it was a great win for Charles, but it for me it's tainted now. When we, when you look at it, absolutely in retrospect, it's just like you know, was that even a legal card that he was driving? I mean, he did a great job to stay ahead and. You you know, he's not the one that's going in there and monkeying around with the fuel map or the engine map and or with the with the with the engine itself. You know, so it's just um, it, it was a it was exciting and fun to watch at the time. But, you know, if, if you look at like Barry Bonds's home run record or Mark McGuire and the asterisks beside all those. Oh, I- I the, love the, the steroid era, man. And, but but the, the problem with the steroid era was if you look at, say, 1998, uh, if you look at 99, yeah. ni- ni- like 2003, like Bond's big years, Major League Baseball had no rules outlawing the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Like That was all exactly. on Bud Selig and the owners because they they embraced the offensive era. Anyways, to go back to that Ferrari piece, I just wanted to add <laughs> I just wanted to add one other quick oh, piece. Oh, man, I wanted to talk about Barry Bonds Dude, a little bit more. I'm still a big Barry Bonds <laughs> fan. But just to go back to that Ferrari piece, the, the, the general consensus is that hmm. somebody tipped the FIA off to what was happening at Ferrari. So either it was a supplier, yeah. either it was an employee, or it was a former employee that had moved on to another team. And ultimately, the general consensus or kind of general assumption or belief is that the FIA approached Ferrari, the FIA themselves couldn't identify whatever it was that Ferrari were doing, that and that Ferrari ultimately showed them the Ferrari actually showed the FIA uh, with the promise of leniency. Ferrari showed mm-hmm. them how they were breaching the sporting and technical regulations. And that's why they got off because the FIA themselves couldn't detect what it was they were doing. And it was Ferrari that mm-hmm. showed them uh, in the spirit of leniency. And that's why the punishment was non-existent. And that's why it all remains secretive to this day. At least that's what I believe happened based on things I've been told uh, off the record. Yeah. 
You know, it's funny because kind of thinking back to, I seem to remember Max Verstappen at the Brazilian Grand Prix basically flat out came and said they're cheating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Max, it is, uh, you know, pulling no punches, uh, kind of like no holds barred uh, kind of uh, comments. But uh, anyways, uh, let's uh, move along. So the teams are actually discussing having a, a winter shutdown to basically help the the, the well-being of their, sta- uh, their, their staff. I mean, you know, there's... Uh, I think this is a, a good idea. They have a, a two week shutdown during the summer break. Um, that's 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 in the rules. That's fast. You know that that's fast and set. So that means that the that that team and staff members get time off through the middle of an extremely busy season, and and, and it's not like one team gets like a, an advantage over another because they all have to shut down. So I mean, the rest of the time is they, uh, you know, they they keep working. Basically, the rest of the year they do give uh, people time off over Christmas and through the holiday uh, uh, period. But uh, as part of the talks that they've had with the uh, Formula One Sporting Advisory Committee, teams are represented by their sporting directors, and uh, it's been proposed apparently that a winter shutdown could actually uh, become a thing. So you, you and I, we we talk about this. as much as we love the spectacle of Formula One, as much as we love to see racing all the time. We're going to a potentially a 24 race season next year. And I only say potentially because there, there's a real possibility that China is going to drop off. We're not going to end up uh, back in Shanghai. So we're only, and I say that uh, somewhat, uh, I'll, you know, jokingly with only 23 races, but that's, that is a massive ask of not just the people in the pits, in the paddock of the drivers, but everybody involved with the Formula One team, right from the you know the the person at the front desk to the engineers, the designers, everyone involved. That's that's still a massive, massive ask, despite the the, the shutdowns and breaks that they have throughout the season. Buddy, I have to eat some parrots because oh, eat some parrots. I don't think that was the phrase I meant. I don't think is, that was the is, phrase. Is it, I, it, is eat some crows. Eat some that crow. That's, you're trying yeah, to be humble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I should I should display, yeah. demonstrate a little bit of humility Gross. because I have said on this show <laughs> multiple times in the past that there is a mandatory winter break that is imposed upon the team and the sporting regulations, and I was totally mm. wrong. We all know about the two weeks in the summer, which really stretches at least from a broadcast perspective and a calendar perspective to three or four weeks. But we all know that there's that mandatory shutdown in the summer. I always assumed. I always believed there was a shutdown in the back half of December, which is actually not correct. And I think a lot of teams probably do that just because it's it's convenient to align everybody's vacation calendar so everyone's off at the same time. But yeah, if, if it's not happening today, sure, why not make it happen? Yeah, Toto was uh, saying that uh, they would like to see something starting at Christmas, so the last week of December, and going into the new year, into January for for, for two weeks. So you could have uh, potentially a, a three-week uh, break. So <laughs> I know that would probably make a, a lot of extra pressure and long hours for, for, for the rest of the time. But, you know, I, I believe that the the, the, the motivation is, is is sincere and, you know, it's the teams wanting to look after the, the well-being, both mental and, and, and physical well-being of the of the people that work for the teams because you know as much as i think that all of us say hey it'd be great to have a job in formula one do we would we really want to because i have a feeling that you know if you're really in the thick of it that this is a a 24 7 365 kind of thing it's either you're either 
all in or you're not because the, the demands there are just going to be and and the pressure of course is just going to be monumental you know i mean we look at like the nfl season going from labor day until well super bowl is basically middle of february but i mean they don't stop i mean it goes all year round and you know it's 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 a big thing for people at the top regardless what the what elite level of sport it is so i, I think this is potentially a good thing All right. So moving along to the next one. So Formula One is apparently set to drop the rule change for 2023 that apparently no drivers want. Do you want to talk about this one, Hammy? I do, because this whole topic- You got that look on your face. It makes me very sad. I'm I'm a huge (laughs) advocate for tire blankets. And this story comes from the race.com, the the fantastic edge straw. But, and I quote, F1 set to drop 2023 rule change that quote unquote, no driver wants. And if you don't know, and you're not aware, Formula One, Pirelli, Liberty, the FIA are in the, I would say the- Initial stages moving towards removing tire blankets from the sport altogether. So Pirelli is busy trying to engineer and design tires that can be truly functional without the without the aid, the benefit of having a tire blanket. And of course, tire blankets consume a ton of electricity. So from a sustainability perspective, I think the FIA Liberty want to get rid of tire blankets as well. So in the process of getting to that future state where they'll be banned by 2024, they've been slowly reducing the effectiveness of the blanket. So last year, uh, I think they reduced the tire blankets from about 100 degrees at the front and 80 degrees at the rear. And then this year, they're only, um, I think, powering the blankets to 70 degrees Fahrenheit front and rear. So they're slowly ratcheting down the effectiveness of the blankets leading up to 2024, where tire blankets Mm -hmm. will be banned. And what they did recently was a couple of tests at the 50 degree Fahrenheit temperature that they plan to run the they run the blankets at next year. And I think the feedback from the drivers was specifically that that is way too cool and it leads to incredibly dangerous driving conditions and characteristics when they come out of the pits. So the plan was that next year they were going to cut down the tire blanket temperature to 50 degrees. I was saying Fahrenheit, but I clearly meant Celsius. Uh, The plan was that next year they were going to cut down the tire blanket temperatures to 50 degrees Celsius front and rear. They are not going to do that because of the feedback from the drivers and they'll keep them at 70 degrees Celsius. All of that said though, uh, the FIA, Liberty, Formula One, they still have all intentions of completely removing tire blankets from 2024 onwards. And of course, these tests that they're doing on the side are really important because Pirelli needs to be able to design and engineer a drive or a tire that can be relatively functional and perform relatively well cold because these tires are going to be coming right off the rack straight on the car and go straight on the track. And I think the reason that I like tire blankets is I love the fact that the drivers can come out of the pits and drive hard right from the jump. What's going to change mm-hmm. now, of course, is that for a lot of these drivers, unless the tires are significantly reworked, and I don't know how Pirelli's necessarily going to be able to do that, at least initially, when drivers come out of the pits, when they come out of a pit stop, they are going to be driving as if they are an ice for the first four, five, six, seven laps until they get the tires up to optimal operating temperature. So it's going to be a real shift and a real change to Formula One and the way that the teams approach strategy and pit stops and tire selection. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, Tim and I talked about this uh, last week a little bit uh, too. 
And, you know, I, I'm in favor of um, getting rid of uh, tire blankets only in the in the situation that they can develop a tire that performs well when it's cold, yeah. because obviously these ones don't. And because, because I like the, the, the idea that these are supposed to be the best drivers in the world. So, you know, kind of like take away some of these, I don't want to call crutches, but some of these, they're driver make aids, them work they're driver aids, right? Yeah. They're driver. Aids. Sure. Let, let's call them driver aids, but not, if it compromises safety, right. I mean, safety always has to be at, at the top of uh, top of the list. So, I mean, this is a, a significant engineering challenge for um, Pirelli. And, you know, there, there's obviously a lot of uh, pressure on them to get it right. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I mean, is it too much of an ask for them to do this? I, I, I don't know. So, I mean, this will be an interesting story to follow as it uh, develops to see, you know, what are the challenges that the tire manufacturer are having themselves to find that right combination of, um, you know, ingredients that that right recipe to get that that magic tire compound that rubber uh, formula that will work without uh you know the 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 use of a driver you know the 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 tire warmers and um yeah i know it's kind of nerdy to think about it and talk about it but it it's also really really interesting because i mean obviously they didn't have it back in the day but you know it's i don't know this it's 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 an interesting twist in formula one i think as you were talking daily and i was listening because i'm a good podcast co-host something occurred to me and it's that i keep looking ahead to the next couple of years so 2023 2024 2025 and i keep thinking there's nothing truly transformational happening obviously 2026 we get the new power unit regulations which is something that we're going to look forward to and speculate and talk about quite a bit but 2024 is going to be a really transformational year in itself because we're going to be going into an era where all these formula one drivers are going to have to operate on effective cold tires without tire blankets like that's a big shift and obviously we're supposed to ratchet down the effectiveness of the tire blankets next year which as the story from ed straw indicates won't be happening but all of a sudden we're going to pull away that blanket benefit that blanket driver aid entirely for 2024 and it's going to be fascinating to see to your point what type of tire Pirelli is going to be able to engineer. And then it'll be interesting to see how the teams engineer their suspensions in the cars to reflect the fact that they're not going to be on hot tires straight out of the pit stop. And then ultimately, to your point as well, that if we really are talking about the best drivers in the world, it'll be really interesting to see who can adapt to to that new world of Formula One when they don't have the driver aid of a hot tire blanket on the tires all the time. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think that uh, for for me is uh, you know the the kind of I, I think the real interesting part of it is just how good you know like who would be good at this and who wouldn't, but again you know they, they have to get to the point that they've developed a tire that can actually do the job and uh, not be a, an obvious uh, you know safety safety risk. Okay, uh, let's take another quick break. When we come back, still plenty of things uh, to talk about, and we're going to go over to Haas for a little bit. So hang on, we'll be back in just a moment. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. 
Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. So as mentioned before the break, we're going to talk about uh, Haas and uh, Stoffel Van Dorn, uh, most recently in Formula E, former Formula One driver, is set to join Aston Martin for next season as a reserve driver. And that uh, could uh, be uh, perhaps bad news for someone like uh, Mick Schubacher, who probably will not be back with Haas next season. And uh, this is kind of an interesting one. I, I've kind of often wondered about uh, Stoffel Vendor. That hasn't been something I've thought about uh, a lot, but he was, uh, you know, he came into Formula One at just the wrong time, you know, because he filled in for a race or two. When was that in 2015? Remember when uh, Fernando had that horrible accident in Australia, the first uh, race of the year, the car came apart. Yeah, 2016. 2016, Pardon me. Yeah. Thank you for that. And so, I mean, he, I I mean, it was incredible the way that that car just uh, disintegrated and came up to rest against the uh, tire barriers. I guess that would be what in turn three or four, where it kind of goes from that sharp right-hander into the left-hander again. Anyways, uh, Fernando was uh, a little bit uh, kind of banged up uh, after that one, even though he walked away and fortunately was uh, was all right. But Stoffel came in, filled in for him the, the next race in Bahrain, and I think he, he scored, scored a points. P10. He got P10. Yeah. Which uh, which was fantastic for for you know for a young driver like that, you know eventually he does get a, a drive with uh, McLaren, but right at the time when they were not at you know they they weren't in a good spot like you know this is kind of you know before the real whole Zach Brown thing happened you still had Eric Boulier there who was like that like the, the the team principal and everything that they tried to do it just it just wasn't going well and we we talked about a little bit earlier about the, you know some of the frustrations and obviously the things that were happening when Fernando was there I played that clip at the Russian Grand Prix although that might have been the the, the year after that I mean the thing is he he didn't obviously make well, I, I think he did his best, but it just obviously didn't work out. And then eventually parts ways with uh, McLaren. But he's done well in Formula E over the past uh, several years. But now coming back to Formula One as a reserve driver, kind of getting his foot back in, in the door. And especially Aston Martin is kind of an interesting team. You know, you got Lance there next year. You got Fernando there. Might not be a bad place for a guy that's looking to rejuvenate his career and, and maybe restart it and and get back into Formula One car one day. What do you think? Yeah, it's it's funny, and I've shared this story before, but I was actually at the Williams factory in September of 2016. So at the time, they had Valtteri Bottas and Felipe Massa as their driver lineup. And at that point, it had already been announced that Felipe Massa was going to retire, but they hadn't announced who was going to replace him. And I had on pretty good authority at that point, it was going to be Lance Stroll because he was going to bring so much mm-hmm. money and he was on his way at the time to winning the F3 championship but everyone at the factory in 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 Grove where, where the Williams mm-hmm. factory is based were incredibly excited about the prospect of bringing in Stoffel Van Dorn and everyone we talked mm-hmm. to Stoffel 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 that team was very much invested in him or they weren't, and it was an incredible smokescreen to distract from the fact that it was always going to be Lance Stroll. But that that always <laughs> kind of resonated with me, and I always felt he was 
he was dealt a bit of an unfortunate card, not an unlucky card, because if you get the opportunity to drive an F1, you sign with whatever team. Like you're, you don't, you don't have sure. the luxury yeah. of turning down a drive, right? So he took the drive that was available to him. And unfortunately, as you and I have discussed so many times, like 2015, 16, 17, 18 was just an atrocious time to be driving a McLaren car that you're driving his first year. He was driving with that Honda power unit in the year with that massive reliability issue. The next year they made that the kind of that not short sighted, but kind of quick rapid switch over to the Renault power unit. And of course he was partnered with Fernando Alonso and there was a ton of distractions because Fernando was being so toxic within the team. Like it was a bad time to be a driver as a young rookie in F1. Like you really want to be in a situation where the environment is stable and it wasn't a stable environment. And you want to be in a team where there's a driver that you can learn from. And I don't think that Felipe, not Felipe, I don't think that Fernando was a nurturing type of fellow that was there to share data and telemetry and share best practices when you're doing a track walk. I just, it was a bad situation, but what's really juicy about this, of course, is that Stoffel Van Dorn Mm -hmm. is going to Aston Martin. Well, that's bad news for Mick Schumacher. And the reason it's bad news for Mick Schumacher is because Stoffel Van Dorn is going to displace the current Aston Martin reserve driver who happens to be Nico Hulkenberg. So Nico Hulkenberg with 180 Formula One Grand Prix starts could now very well be on his way to Haas to fill that second seat next to Kevin Magnussen, which would mean all of the chairs, like if we're playing that game of musical chairs, there's no chairs left. And that means Mick Schumacher will be out of Formula One, at least as a full-time, at least as a full-time driver. Mm-hmm. Because I think, I think this tells the story that Aston Martin, we're looking for a reserve driver to replace Nico. And if they're looking to replace Nico, it's only because he's got to drive with Haas next season. Yeah, he's got uh, something uh, sorted out. But I mean, uh, we'll we'll talk about maybe this is a good time to kind of... uh, parlay this one into a discussion about uh, Danny Ricardo because uh, Nico obviously has been, um, he's been kind of the guy that you tap on the shoulder if one of your drivers comes down with COVID the last uh, couple of years. And uh, (laughs) so, I mean, he has, well, no, I mean, it's so true. true. And and, and, yeah, and I don't, I I don't mean just kind of like, uh, you know, throw shade at Nico or kind of, uh, you know, make make a joke of it. But I mean, he had a full time drive with uh, Force India up until a couple of years ago. And it's kind of filled in here or there. But I mean, he's obviously over 30 now. So if you're Danny Ricardo, who uh, basically said, um, you know, like uh, in the last couple of days that he's 100% confident he won't be on the grid next year. Then if uh, if you're Danny looking at what happened to, uh, to to Nico Hulkenberg that hasn't had a full-time year or drive in a couple or several years, then maybe it's not uh, the, the end of the world. Maybe you don't fall off the, 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 the radar that quickly. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it, it certainly is interesting. But now Mick Schumacher certainly looks like the odd man out. I mean, I, I can't imagine that uh, that Nico is just going to walk away. I mean, he's a guy that's got a ton of F1 uh, experience. And I mean, he's done a pretty good job as a reserve driver. And, um, you know, if you still want to keep your, your, you know, your name in Formula and you still want to be involved, then that seems like a pretty good place to be if you're still looking for that full-time drive. So I, I, I completely stand behind what, uh, what you're speculating and thinking about, too is uh, that, uh, you know, he, he's going over to Haas and, uh, you know, Mick is uh, without a drive uh, next year. So l- let's talk about Danny now. So he's uh, he said, uh, I can confidently say I won't be on the grid behind a wheel next year. I, I guess this is news that isn't really news. I guess we, we just really needed to, to hear it from, from, from Danny's 
you know, mouth himself. But I, I just can't help but think that that race that he had in Austin last weekend, despite the fact that he punted Yuki oh, off yeah, the yeah, track yeah. there and got the 10 second penalty. I mean, he was driving with fire in the belly or whatever you want to call it. I mean, this was the race that I think that that so many people wanted to see from Danny Ricardo from what the last year, two years. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like this was something that really was a, a long time coming now, whether he can deliver that again this weekend in Brazil or in Yas in a couple of weeks. I, I don't know, but I liked what I saw from Danny Ricardo. After it was all said and done, he ends up in P7. I'm like, this is, and, and ahead of his teammate who was P9, you know, I, that's exactly the sort of stuff we wanted to see from Daniel Ricardo. And, and sadly, just a, a little bit too late. And who knows, maybe might be the one of his last performances ever in a Formula One, which I think would be doubly disappointing. Nothing further to add. <laughs> <laughs> I just get the thumbs up. You got the thumbs up. Next I hate topic. It when you <laughs> got the thumbs up. <laughs> Next topic, indeed. Okay, so um, okay, well, let, let's uh, keep uh, talking about uh, some of the um, the young Formula One drivers. So, according to Eric van Haren, a uh, Dutch motorsport uh, journalist, I believe, with the uh, Telegraaf, uh, says that uh, Nick de Vries, uh, who's going to AlphaTauri next year, will be working with um, race engineer Pierre Hamelin and uh, trainer Piri Samella. Uh, uh, who is uh, working uh, beside uh, Pierre Gasly. And uh, De Vries will also be working with Pierre's manager, Guillaume Legoff, and uh, his uh, his agency. So sounds like, uh, you know, Nick, he isn't even like, fir- well, I mean, he's firmly is in Formula One, but it sounds like he's getting everything uh, all sorted out. I- I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, what Nick De Vries uh, can do in Formula One. Talked about a little earlier that uh, that 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 amazing performance he had at Monza. I mean, he's been pretty solid in, in Formula E. And and um, yeah, it's kind of funny. Like when you think that he's he's been in that Mercedes organization, and he's going to 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 Alpha Tauri because it's kind of funny. It's I find it a little bit ironic, right? Because uh, Pierre is now going to to Alpine. We've 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 talked about you and I quite a bit over you know probably the last year. That just wondering how will Pierre do when he kind of gets out of that. You know that silo that is Red Bull, it is and is able to maybe kind of you know get a little bit of uh, freedom, and it's it's almost seems a little bit kind of funny to kind of flip that and put that on uh, Nick De Vries going from Mercedes, which you know I I never feel like anyone's uh, really restricted there, but he kind of obviously hit the ceiling, and you know I think that uh, Alpha Tauri they, they've they've sometimes punched above their weight, so be interesting to see what uh, what Nick can do over there. Okay, so um, let's talk about, oh, here, Nick Latifi. Um, so uh, this is, a, you know, he's obviously coming to the end of his time in uh, Formula One. And uh, sounds like uh, Nicky is uh, pretty much adamant saying that uh, he doesn't want to be a reserve driver in, uh, in Formula One if he's not going to get a, a full-time drive. So uh, why don't you take this one up uh, a little bit further? Hannah? Yeah, I don't think there's a, a lot to comment on here. I, I think his expectation was that he probably wants to be a full-time driver or have a pathway to being a full-time driver in Formula One. Um, 
I don't think that there are any opportunities for him that would pave the way to him resuming his career as a full-time F1 pilot. I think he had a three-year run, and I don't think that when you look specifically at how he stacked up against his teammates, whether it was George Russell the first two years or if it was Alex Albon in the third year, I just I don't think there's enough meat on the bone to create a compelling reason for a team to invest in him. And a team might be willing to take him on as a test driver for test days and for practice sessions and to be a backup driver, sure. Uh, but I don't think anyone in Formula One is currently looking at Nikki um, as a potential driver for their team. There's just too much young talent and too many drivers that are trying to find their way onto the Formula One grid. Nikki did comment earlier today as well, and I, I don't have the quote on me, but he did make a comment earlier today about the fact that Indy could be the na- next kind of natural step to him. Um, and I think Mm-hmm. I, I have to think that it probably wouldn't be stock car racing, but if he wants to continue his career as an open wheel racing driver at the highest level, I think Indy's probably the right place to do it. And I think given the fact that Indy races in Canada, of course, we have the Toronto race. Um, and given the fact that Indy gets a significant amount of exposure up here, and I think with the sponsorship dollars that he could take to an Indy team, I think that could be good for his career. And of course, Indy's not a spec car series. You've got a couple of different you got a couple of different power unit pr- manufacturers in Chevy and Honda, um, but I think there's mm-hmm. a lot more parity, and I think there's a lot more competitive balance. I would be very interested to see just what type of racing driver he is when he's not driving arguably the worst car on the grid. I would love to be able to see him go over to Indy and Fair. experience some degree of redemption by competing for podiums like he did in his final year in Formula Two. But yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a Formula One drive available to him. I also think that he'd be a great member of the media, but I think he's still he's still young enough and I think there's still enough funding to to find his way into another competitive another compet another seat in a competitive open wheel racing series. Absolutely. Okay, I wanted to pull up another one here and we talked uh, a little bit uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, Lewis Hamilton and a little bit about um Fernando Alonso. So the Lewis had um uh, tweeted a picture of him and Fernando uh, a couple of days ago, uh, back when they were at McLaren together. Hammy, why don't you explain this one? Because uh, honestly, I've I've missed out. I, I didn't see the original tweet, and I didn't uh, see Lewis's comments. Yeah, this about one it. was a little bit juicy, and I I always I always pretend I'm not that guy that loves the, kind of the juicy, gossipy side of Formula One. But I'm the first person to retweet this kind of stuff. <laughs> but obviously, if you if you didn't pick up on it last week, Fernando Alonso made some comments that that diminished that diminished the value of at least six of Lewis Hamilton's seven world championship trophies. And Lewis responded by posting a photo of he standing on the top step of the podium in 2007 when he was racing with McLaren, looking down at Fernando Alonso, who was second in that race and placing his hand on his shoulder. And I thought it was like the ultimate ultimate flex, ultimate humble brag, and ultimate, ultimate shot at, at Lewis. But Lewis, after the Mexican Grand Prix, when he was doing his media obligations, was actually asked by a member of the media kind of about to kind of react to some of Alonso's comments and to also comment on the fact that he tweeted out this picture, which was obviously uh, in response to Fernando's comments. And, and Lewis, Lewis was good. And he, he basically said like, look, you know what? I've always tried to be incredibly respectful of Fernando and his accomplishments and basically give him his flowers when they're due. But for some reason, mm-hmm. uh, Fernando obviously has, uh, 
has an issue or continues to hold a grudge against Lewis for the outcome of that 2007 championship, which you and myself and Bird, I think, discussed at length when we were doing the book review for the mechanic, right? So if you haven't heard that, go back and check it out. It's very, very cool. But I think Fernando, I think he holds a bit of a grudge because I think in a lot of ways he feels that Lewis cost him his third consecutive championship that year. And of course, didn't end well. And and Fernando ended up leaving McLaren after (laughs) a single year. But I think there's also a little bit of bitterness because from 2014 through 2020, uh, 2021, really, Lewis just ran the table in Formula One and, and captured six titles. And during that time, of course, Fernando departs Ferrari, where he contended for at least two titles, but ends up going to McLaren. And we all know what a disaster 15, 16, 17, and 18 were for he and that team. And he ultimately, ultimately kind of talked himself out of Formula One with some of the negativity that he was spewing with when he was with McLaren. Uh, but during that entire period, Hamilton's just winning and winning and winning. So I think there's clearly some bitterness between the two of them. But uh, I think if yep. there's bitterness from Hamilton to Alonso, he does a much better job of concealing it. And Fernando is just outwardly, outwardly very clear that he doesn't have a lot of uh, respect for Lewis Hamilton as a Formula One seven times world champion. Yeah, I, I just double checked. So if you want to get a little bit more background on that, go back to episode 362 from uh, earlier this uh, summer where we sat down with Bird Pinkerton and we reviewed the uh, the, the Mechanic, a book by uh, former McLaren mecha- mechanic, Mark Elvis Priestley, which was a, a pretty cool read, which we, we enjoyed. And we, we talked about that uh, that season with Lewis and Fernando at, at length. Okay, one more story, then we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the uh, Brazilian Grand Prix this weekend. But the, this last one, this is a, a, a NASCAR story, and th- this is really kind of like crazy, but Ross Chastain, he floored it and slingshotted himself around the wall uh, to go from 10th to 5th to advance to the uh, the championship uh, in the, the NASCAR playoffs. This is just a really crazy. I've watched yeah, this me too. video so many times. Uh, a couple of times, many times. I've watched the in-car camera. I've watched the TV feed. It is uh, pretty crazy. Like Ross talks about how he's he tried stuff like this play like uh, on video games i mean it is pretty pretty cool to watch and it's it's just amazing the, the in-car camera is just crazy the way that he goes up against the wall and just like really slingshots just it, it, around it's, that corner it's an- it's really incomprehensible cool. because, of course, he's trying to qualify for the NASCAR playoffs, and he has basically yep. seconds to make up X number of places, and there's one opportunity to do it, which is to basically slingshot himself across the wall, and he's grinding the one side of the car along the wall the entire time, makes up five places, and qualifies for the playoffs. So, again, I know most of you probably aren't big NASCAR fans, and I'm not going to pretend to be a big stock car racing fan, but this was awfully, awfully yep. cool, and one of those moments that truly transcends that discipline of motorsports yeah oh yeah it's one of those things that you don't have to really be like a hardcore fan and and understand all the nuances i mean to sort of like appreciate genius and brilliance right and i thought that was very very cool like you say it just it's sort of like one of those transcendent moments and uh, very cool i mean just go go and search it up on social media it's uh, or on youtube it's it's all over the place all right uh, time for a quick final break and come back talk about the brazilian grand prix we'll do so in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back
Okay, guys, welcome back into the the last segment for the show this week. Of course, we'll have the uh, the post race show on Sunday night, but we're back to Brazil again. We had a Brazilian Grand Prix last year, and of course, sort of kind of uh, not over the previous couple of years. So, this will be the fiftieth Brazilian Grand Prix, first held way back in nineteen seventy two. The the driver that has won the most is uh, French driver Alain Prost. The professor won there six times. The winningest constructor is McLaren with 12 wins it is a 4.31 kilometer or 2.68 mile long circuit race length is 308 or sorry 305.88 kilometers or 190.06 miles 71 laps last year we had Valtteri Bottas on pole podium was Lewis Hamilton Max Verstappen and Valtteri Bottas Sergio Perez set the fastest lap with a 111.010 so you go back and and look at some of the great names that have won this race I mean you know it's funny too with some of the races that we 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 lost multiple years because of covid we only lost the Brazilian Grand Prix once in 2020. So that's, uh, I think, a bit of a, a testament to, to getting back. It's a bit of an old school track. It's kind of narrow and it's not as flashy as some of the newer tracks. But I, I like this circuit, Hammy. You know, it's got some great flowing corners. It's got some tighter technical uh, sections. It, it's got some nice elevation change to it. And the, and the, the setting there between the two lakes, you know, Interlagos. You know, is you know literally means between two lakes in Portuguese. I think it's a great race. Uh, you know, a great racetrack, great location. The Brazilian fans are always uh, passionate. You know, some very memorable moments there. Remember Felipe Massa when he retired in 2016? That very emotional walk down the pits, and that was the year that he retired, but unretired. <laughs> But that that was really kind of an emotional moment because that was before he was persuaded to to come back and uh, and not retire. But uh, that that was really quite something because his wife and his son were there in the Williams uh, garage uh, to, to to meet him. And um, yeah, there, it was one of those things, you know. Like uh, I had a, had a big lump in in my throat. So I must admit that was quite the emotional moment. But uh, just to take it a look here at the weather forecast, had it up here a second ago. So for Saturday, uh, we are looking for qualifying in the afternoon. We are looking at about uh, sixteen degrees Celsius, with about twenty percent chance of uh, precipitation. Uh, I can't see where the toggle is for uh, Fahrenheit. Apologize for that. So Sunday, we are looking about uh, the same. Uh, we're looking at about, uh, so mid-afternoon, we are looking at about 14% uh, chance of uh, precipitation, a high of uh, 18 degrees uh, Celsius. And like I say, I don't have the uh, the immediate conversion. Oh, here we go. I'll just uh, flip it here into to Fahrenheit. So this is what it's going to be, about mid-60s, something like that. We'll see. see if we can get this. Yeah, so it's going to be about... Uh, 65 degrees Fahrenheit for race time on Sunday afternoon. Doesn't look like there's a big chance of rain here, Hammy, but we've seen some downpours here in the past, and uh, we, we've seen this race come to a grinding halt. And I think it was 2016 when it was a, a, a wet race. Exactly, yep. you do exactly where I was going with that. That that was some brilliant stuff that we saw for, for, from Max uh, that uh, this uh, or that year. But regardless if it's wet or dry, I mean, Toto said that he doesn't expect uh, Mercedes to be as competitive uh, this weekend as they were at uh, in Mexico City last weekend. You know, again, is it's just like I, I find it so difficult to put my money on anybody other than Max Verstappen and Red Bull at the moment. And, you know, Red Bull, or sorry, Mercedes were saying that they would take 
you know, just getting a race win over position in the championship, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, in the, in the constructors. And it seems really, really weird at this point in the season, we we've had what 20 races now or whatever it is that we haven't talked once about a Mercedes victory. And if you said that to me, even 12 months ago, that we might be looking at a year that Mercedes didn't record a win, I would have been like, Hammy, do you really want to think about that? Maybe walk those comments back because that that's not going to happen. But but here we are. We got two races left in 2022 and there is a real good possibility that uh, Mercedes is not going to score a victory this year. That blows my mind, I must it admit. It definitely doesn't look like Red Bull is turning down those power units. They've got nothing to preserve because they're going to start with a fresh supply of power units next year. Turn them up and 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 shoot for the shoot for the stars because they they have nothing to lose with two races left and I think I think what we saw last weekend was probably the opportunity that Mercedes wanted and I, I, I can't necessarily criticize any team for their strategy during that race. I think if the tires had worn as quickly as was predicted by the modeling that the teams used, you know what, Lewis could have been in position for a race win if, if Max had had to pit that third, well, that third time, that second time, which of course never happened. But I don't see him, I don't see Mercedes picking up a race win in Abu Dhabi. And I certainly don't see them picking up a race win in Interlagos. A couple of things I just wanted to add about this track. And I, I feel like I was doing dishes earlier and I was thinking about this because if feels sometimes that we focus a lot on the really poor tracks on the championship, like Monaco, which is just a procession. It's just super boring. But the more I thought about it, there are some really great tracks on the calendar. And we have a lot of reasons to be thankful. Obviously, we had a great race in Japan and we go from Japan to Austin, which is super fun and a great racing circuit. And we Mm -hmm. go to Mexico City, which is unique. And it's in a specific challenge because it's so slippery and because of the elevation. And then we go to Brazil, which has a high elevation and it's often wet and it's got a ton of elevation like there's a lot of reasons to be excited and if you're still new to formula one and even if you you're not there's there's a lot to look forward to and if you have the opportunity to race this this track at f1 2023 or if you ever get the opportunity to sit in an iRacer sim i think the couple the the, mm-hmm. the characteristics of this track that i find so special are the elevation it feels and i've used this term yeah. before and I, it's probably a little bit hyperbolic but this track feels to me like a roller coaster. And you start on that racing grid and you run towards the first turn in the Senna S. And, and it's funny because it's not a long straight before you have to turn in, but you're turning in and going downhill simultaneously. And it's ultra challenging to find your breaking point, especially because you've got a full load of fuel at that first corner. The first time you're coming in at 220 kilometers an hour instead of 320 kilometers an hour as you would on a flying lap. And you've got to find your spot, find your line, and you're diving downhill. And then it's into turn three. You've got that long sweeping turn and it's a high speed straight into corner four and five. And then sector, sector three is from turn 12, really all the way up to the start finish line. It's just an all out full throttle top gear sector. Like this is, it's just such a great track. And it was built a long time ago that this track is what, 80 years old now, probably a little under 80 years, maybe a little over 80 years old. And of course it's been modified and changed and revised over the years, but this is a, a historically great racing circuit. And we've seen a lot of wet races here in 2016. I'm glad you brought that up because I was watching, I was watching a video with Nico Rosberg earlier today, and he was talking about that 2016 
2016 race and it was wet. And of course it was just neat. It was, it was Max's second, second season of formula one. He'd won earlier that year. He'd taken his maiden victory in Spain when the two Mercedes had taken each other out. But Nico was talking about the fact that he's sitting there behind the safety car and behind him is, is Max. And Nico was like, it is so wet and the track is so unpredictable. He's like, I'm just keeping the car straight because I'm so worried about aquaplaning. And he's looking behind him in his mirrors and Max is just going everywhere, back and forth, side to side on the track because he was so brave that he was trying to find the part of the track with the most traction so he would know what line to take when the race recommenced. Um, yeah, this is... It's a great circuit. I'm looking forward to it, but I don't expect anything short of of a Red Bull uh, dominant performance this race weekend as we've seen all season. Still worth tuning in because I think it's a spectacular track. Yeah, 100%. And I, I'm impressed that you knew the, uh, how old this track was while you were talking there. I had to go and check uh, check that out. So they broke ground in 1938 and it formally opened on May 12th, 1940 which was actually 82 years <laughs> ago. So that is a very, when we say it's old Mark, school, I mean, I've read that, this is pretty today. old school. That, that, that I did not pull from the old <laughs> brain box. No, but uh, th- that's kind of a cool stat. I, I, I really had no idea that it was that old. I, I thought that it dated back to the early 70s to uh, when they, uh, you know, the, the first uh, you know Brazilian Grand Prix because they, they, uh, they had the Brazilian Grand Prix there from 72 to 77. And then again, uh, they had like a 10-year hiatus or from 1980 um, uh, to, yeah, 1990. Then they uh, went back there in 1990, and then, of course, we had a year off. But just uh, looking at the tire selection, so it's going to be um, the mid-range of the Pirellis, the C2 hard, a C3 medium, and the C4 soft. Yeah, you know, very much like you say, Hammy, uh, I, I can't see anybody else uh, beating Red Bull at the moment. But who, who knows? Maybe something will happen on, on race day. Maybe this isn't a track that suits them, but you know, that, that doesn't seem like a, a very, you know, you know, wise thing to say because there haven't been too many tracks that haven't really suited the Red Bull this week. They've, they, or sorry, this, uh, this year. They certainly have been uh, dominant uh, almost right from the very first corner from the very first, uh, you know, race uh, of the year. And here we are. 21 races later or whatever it might be. I mean, I've, I just have lost track. I mean, it's been such a busy, busy season. So yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see it. Yeah. I, I'm thinking uh, Lou, uh, Max will win this one. You know, why not? He's won 14 other times this year. I think it's Sergio P3. And then I, I think Charles gets on the podium. I think Char- Charles is going to score a P2. I think uh, he's, he's going to be fired up. For Ferrari were disappointing last weekend. I don't know why. Maybe it's a uh, due to the fact that I'm wearing a red shirt, so I'm getting like this uh, or um, you know track top. So maybe I'm sort of subliminally influencing myself as I see my picture in the virtual studio on my screen here. That uh, it's influencing my you know my choice to go with a Ferrari for for P2 this weekend. So, anyways, Hammy, anything else you want to add to that, or do you want to just give your usual shout out? Um, you know, that you usually do yeah, at this my, time my, of week. My usual shout out. Uh, if you enjoy this show, and I know you do because you're still listening after an hour and a half of the two of us rambling away, we would love, we would yep. be 
honored if you could jump onto Spotify and give us a rating, if you could jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review. And to everybody that has done so in the last couple of weeks, trust me, it means the world to both of us. Uh, we both very, very, very much appreciate it. A couple of quick updates as well. We are inching closer and closer to getting our first taste of uh, our merch. So we're hoping to see that shortly in the next couple of weeks and we can make some decisions about what we're going to produce and how much the costs are going to be. Um, and mm -hmm. a lot of you have actually reached out because last year during November and December, we did a flurry of holiday contests in, in no small part because we wanted to increase our Twitter following. Uh, but we, we should probably looking at doing a couple of holiday contests again this year. Maybe we can partner with some of our friends and do some artwork or a magazine subscription, but we'll definitely take a, a look at something like that. But other than man, that's, that's all I got. This was great. Uh, we could wrap up this triple header and we get a couple of weeks off. Then we're off to back to the Middle East to, to conclude the season. And then it's the winter break. And then uh, in no time, we'll be back here talking about all of the news and stories leading into winter testing 2023. And then uh, looking forward to the car launches that always come out sort of mid-February or so, which is always a fun, fun time, especially when you see some of the, the, the leaked photos and things that come out in the days before, some of the mock-ups that some of the more technically adept uh, people uh, come up with uh, over the winter months. Anyways, uh, before we sign off here, just want to give you a reminder, if you want to get in touch, send us an email, scooteryf1pod at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter at scooteryf1pod. And that's a wrap. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the race. We'll be back here on Sunday night to recap the race. And until then, have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon again real, real soon. Bye for now.